From the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Bracely, presented by a Cloud Guru, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we are kind of experiencing a blizzard here in Raleigh. We're getting about six to ten inches of snow today in the middle of the week, which is uh, very unusual, but uh, very, very nice uh, change of pace. So um, Aaron is uh, Aaron is stuck in a snowbank somewhere, so it's just going to be myself today. Um, we're breaking the streak. I think we're at four for those of you that were, uh, were betting the over-under on how many in a row Aaron would do. You know, one of the things that we've, we've never really had a chance to do on this show, and we've always wanted to, um, and there's been a lot of interest from the audience about it, is to really kind of dive into what's going on with Oracle, what's going on with the Oracle cloud. Um, you know, we talk a lot about maybe some other cloud platforms, but uh, very lucky today uh, to have the opportunity to talk to, uh, to Clay McGuirk, who is vice president of Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. And uh, Clay, very excited to have you on the show. Thanks for being on. No, thank you, man. It's, uh, it's a huge uh, pleasure to be here, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you today and, and the rest of your audience. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, we've, we've had a lot of people over, over the last couple of years say, hey, you know, why don't you guys cover the Oracle Cloud some more? And, um, you know, part of it was, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're working with big companies, it's, it's trying to find the right people, and sometimes the timing needs to be where it is. But uh, you've, been, uh, you've been at Oracle for a couple of years now. You, you had some very, very interesting um, stuff you were working on in the past from a cloud perspective. Give folks a sense of, you know, what have you been working on both at Oracle, but, but prior to coming over to Oracle? Sure. Um, so uh, I joined Oracle three and a half years ago. Um, before that, I spent six years at Amazon. My, my background is as a software developer. So um, mostly the, the relevant experience I had at Amazon Web Services. Uh, so I, I was there when we started ElastiCache and shipped that. I worked on uh, RDS, the relational database service, for a while. I also worked on SQS, the simple queuing service, and, and SNS, the simple notification service. I did a few other things at, at Amazon um, before and after that, um, but then I had the opportunity to join Oracle three and a half years ago, and it was an opportunity that was um, a bit too good to pass up, and so I, uh, I switched over and, and started working at Oracle. When I joined Oracle, um, as I said, in 2014, there were about five of us in this new office in Seattle, and so it was, uh, it was very early days and, and had a lot of opportunity to kind of define where we were going and, and see what was going to happen. Um, I originally came over to do a um, at the time, which was mostly to focus on a couple of services, focusing on identity and access management, and then also to build some block storage for the Oracle Cloud. But uh, that project actually became much larger in scope, and uh, over over the course of several years, um, turned into Oracle's uh, new cloud infrastructure platform, which is called Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. Right. Yeah, uh, and, 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 we, and we've heard and we've heard stories about that. Uh, kind of, you know, kind of heard rumors about it being built. I know we we have a friend uh, Leo Leung who had gone over there at at some point. Um, so yeah, give us give us kind of how it got started and, and where it is today. Sure. Uh, well, uh, you know, so Oracle has been in the uh, cloud business for quite some time. They've been a very large software as a service provider for many years, and then. Uh, like like many companies that, that come from their background, they started at the SaaS layer and they moved into the platform as a service layer, and they were a, a late entrant into the infrastructure business. And so um, they had uh, they had acquired a company called Nimbula, which was uh, a startup that uh, Chris Pinkham, the original founder of EC2, 
uh, had gone and started after he left Amazon uh, many years ago. And uh, he had a lot of Amazon connections, and that's actually where uh, he hired some of the first people. I, I didn't know him, but, for example, he hired uh, my, my boss, Don Johnson, um, and he also hired another guy named Craig Kelly. And so uh, we started up this office in Seattle, and um, as part of that, we came to the conclusion that to really take the cloud uh, to where Oracle needed it to be, we had to really do a, a big new investment. And so while originally we had joined to focus on a couple of services, we took a step back and said, hey, what if we really took a, a ground-up rethink? And so we started with you know, uh, new physical data centers, new physical networking, new operational practices, and also an entirely new set of uh, hardware primitives and, and software layers up above that. And we, we wrote up kind of where we thought that should go, and we, we pitched it, and we got greenlit. And then over the course of a, about a year, uh, culminating in, in March of uh, 2016, we opened up our, our, our limited availability release of our first kind of region in Phoenix. Um, and then later that year, at Open World of 2016, we launched the uh, what was then called Bare Metal Cloud Services, but is now called Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. We launched that publicly. Right. Um, and then since then, and since then, we've been uh, moving very quickly. You know, we about a year ago, we had one production region. Right now, we have three production regions and one more will be coming online in February. Um, the team has grown enormously in size. So, as I said, originally, our, our started with about five people in Seattle, uh, you know, three, three and a half years ago. And now I think we have over 1,500 people in downtown Seattle wow. um, on this project. Yeah, wow. it's a crazy ride. Yeah, no, that's a that's a that's a huge huge amount of growth and and, and a lot of headcount. So I'm curious before we get into kind of uh, you know some of the you know what what it, what it looks like when when you guys were first getting started when you went through that like you said that sort of bigger picture process and and it got greenlit. I, I'm curious, you know, publicly we hear um, you know when Larry Ellison gives his keynote every year at Oracle Open World, um, you know he always kind of highlights Amazon Web Services as as the thing that. Um, in some cases, he wants to make comparisons to, you know, we're going to be uh, less expensive or we're going to be faster. And um, on, But on the flip side, and, and Amazon's, you know, cloud is built a certain way, right? It was sort of built from, from early on to be around, um, you know, sort of cloud native applications and, you know, built in the web applications. And, and, and they've had to evolve, um, you know, to, to do more enterprisey stuff. Oracle as a company, not so much your group, but as a company, you know, has huge installed base of, you know, Oracle databases, Oracle applications, customers have a certain expectation of, you know, kind of how those work. And, and I know Oracle has, has also, you know, always said, Hey, we're very interested in helping customers move applications to the cloud. W what kind of guidance did they give you as you were, you were building out this, this new, you know, like you said, bare metal cloud at the time, cloud infrastructure now, like, was there guidance that said, hey, um, you have to skew it more towards being able to, to migrate existing applications? Was it, you know, target more new applications? Like, how do you go about thinking through that kind of architecture when you have, you know, two very different types of applications pulling at what could be your architecture? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good question. And I'll, and I'll try to give you the perspective then as well as kind of how that perspective has evolved over time. So, um, you know, having been in, in AWS, uh, and not just me, there's a lot of people who work here who were early people in Amazon Web Services. Um, the original design point was, you know, a couple of people in a dorm room. And yeah. so um, that's typically focused on 
new applications that you don't have a lot of legacy and you can do things a new way. Um, the, the huge, the huge thing I wanted to focus on when I came to Oracle was, you know, yes, Oracle is a specific company and Oracle has a long history of database customers, et cetera. But the market that I feel like is underserved is that the vast majority of server side computing still occur occurs in private data centers. Right. Um, Right. If you look at even the number of servers shipped every year, uh, even the majority of servers are still not shipped to cloud providers. They're still still shipped to on-prem uh, locations. And so what that means is that a lot of the benefits of the cloud aren't available to a whole lot of workloads. And so one perspective on that is to say, hey, you know, those people just, they haven't gotten the message yet. They're not smart enough to do it or they don't, they don't realize how great this new thing is. Um, but that argument kind of falls on its face when you talk to people where they really want to move to the cloud, but they have a lot of barriers. And so uh, the big initiative was, well, how do we build a cloud to enable those people to move to the, move any of their workloads, to move anything they have to the cloud? Um, And that attacks all layers of the stack, but we knew that we had to build it from the infrastructure up. And that affected a lot of our decisions, both in the product definition itself, but also in the underlying architecture and implementation. So, um, for example, one of the reasons that we started off by doing bare metal was not because we think that every customer wants to run on on full servers. Virtualization is an amazing technology, and I think the industry and and society has shown there's a lot of value for that. But instead, it's about there are a bunch of things that only run on bare metal servers. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have a custom hypervisor, or maybe you need to be able to control certain BIOS settings, or... Um, maybe you need uh, extreme performance that you can only get with direct access to hardware. In those cases, we found customers who couldn't move. And, said, and so we said, let's take a step back and make sure that we build the foundation as deep as it needs to go. I don't ever want to have a problem where somebody wants to bring something and it's because we didn't go deep enough. So we started with bare metal and focusing on things like off-box virtualized networking. Uh, from there, we also made a bunch of choices around which type of virtual network we would support. So, for example, most public cloud providers only support um, a virtualized Layer 3 IP network. Mm-hmm. But then you look at a lot of, say, uh, existing workloads, and they do a lot of things like gratuitous ARP or MAC address takeover. They, they require certain L2 features. And for people to be able to move those workloads, they often have to rewrite those applications. And that might work great. It, maybe you don't even, you know, if you have the source code and the developers, but a lot of enterprise applications um, people may not have the source code anymore. It's something they bought from a vendor and they can't modify it. Or the people that would make changes to those applications are no longer available or they don't work there. So um, we attacked it at every layer of the stack, from the way we offer compute to the way we offer uh, our virtualized networking. We made choices around the way in which we would build storage, specifically around um, a lot of the storage choices that were made by <clears throat> other cloud providers is kind of... Uh, around applications that can deal with performance variability. So we have what we consider to be the the best-in-class block storage offering, which offers incredibly high IOPS, very low latency, very high throughput. In in essence, it's comparable to what customers expect out of an enterprise SAN. But we offer it at the same, uh, just-in-time provisioning, very pay-for-what-you-use and and, uh, truly low price that you get out of a traditional commodity uh, cloud block storage offering. And so... Uh, as you go through every piece of every product that we built, you can see the differences. 
Um, even, for example, the way in which we treat um, local disk storage. So as, as you and your audience knows, the hardware advances that have been made in the past five years in terms of, you know, SSDs were available and then, and then NVMe SSDs came out and things like, uh, you know, NVRAM and 3D Crosspoint, et cetera. What's happening is that uh, you can no longer just virtualize everything. If you want if you want four and a half million IOPS out of a server, you can get that by plugging in uh, uh, some NVMe SSD drives. And so uh, when you look at a lot of the existing cloud providers, they offer those. But let's say that you have, you know, 30 terabytes of storage on a host and one of those drives go bad. What the cloud, most cloud providers do is they say, well, you know, you, if you are, you, you should have architected your application properly and just throw that host away and get a new host. But when you look at a lot of existing enterprise applications, that's not how they were architected. Right. They, they don't have an easy ability to throw a host away and just replace it. And so what we've done is we provide guidance on how to do things like, you know, uh, in, you know, having RAID support at the operating system level. And then we also have things like a hardware repair SLA and the ability for a customer to say, hey, you know, that, that SSD went bad. Could you please replace that? And then we have a timeliness guarantee on how we'll replace that. And so um, any one of these single features does not actually end up being all that compelling, right? That you don't make a decision about a cloud provider based on uh, any of those individual choices. But the net effect is that when we talk to customers, especially customers that uh, have a lot of existing workloads, we enable them to move to the cloud much easier than a lot of existing clouds. Right. Um, and I know I'm talking a, a lot, but I want to make sure I fully answer your question. Because the other piece of this is, however, those same companies, while they want to move existing workloads, they want to build new workloads in the cloud, and they don't want to build them the old way. Right? People... People want to be able to bring their past, but they want to be able to build their future. Right, right. And so to do that, you still have to offer all of the great benefits that people expect from the cloud. You need to be able to spin up a VM in less than a minute, in a minute and be able to tear it down. You need to be able to pay for just what you use. You need to have elastic resources. Uh, you need to have the value-added services on top. Um, you need to have, you know... Uh, uh, configuration and orchestration tools. You need to have chef support. You need to have all of the new things as well as all of the old things. Gotcha. Um, and so what we've done is we've really chosen, it's not about not enabling the new workloads, right? And we can go into details about, hey, how do we think about containers and Kubernetes and Docker? And uh, how do you think about things like serverless? And But you can't just focus on those because when your clients have you know this, the vast majority of money that's spent on IT every year is not for new applications, it's for existing applications and maintenance on those. And that's where we can actually help the customers and make their lives easier. Right, right. Yeah, you know, and that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, I, I think... Um everything in everything in it is is really there's you're never at a shortage for which technology you can go pick and choose and and so forth but a lot of it has to do with you know what the timing of what Rick makes sense for my business now uh what makes sense for the skill set we have what makes sense for the applications we have and and you know i think what you're what you're really highlighting is um you know given a whole different, you know, a whole bunch of different choices that you can offer customers, you want to make sure that, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for, for a, a, definitely a set of customers who say, look, you know, we have certain kinds of applications, we have certain expectations of, of the environments of the network of storage and so forth. Um, you're going to make sure that they're not having to sort of, 
you know, cut corners, if you will, just because they're moving to the cloud. You want to give them uh, an experience that they're that they can expect, an experience that that they're sort of used to, um, and 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 deal with you know deal with like you said a lot of the limitations they very well may have, which is I don't have access to that code. Those developers have left. This application can't be changed, and so forth. So now that makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, let me let me sort of follow up with that. I, you know, looking at just the infrastructure. So obviously. Uh, you know, Oracle offers, like you said, you offer SaaS applications, um, you know, PaaS platform tools, and but but when I look at just the infrastructure piece of it, um, even within that, you you offer bare metal, uh, you offer virtual machines, um, you now offer containers as a you know as a part of a sort of like a Kubernetes service. How do you, you know, a lot of people are struggling with architecting. Um, you know, all of those things, even within their own data centers, like how do you go about architecting, you know, the, the ability to automate bare metal uh, virtual machines and, and containers? Do they, do you have to sort of build three different systems or is the system just have to be very, very advanced to be able to deal with all those different types of, of infrastructure use cases? Sure. Um, well, I think, uh, I think VMs and bare metal are more similar than containers. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll go into a couple of different flavors of that. So uh, I'll talk about bare metal and VMs first. Okay. So the way in which we've architected it is that we actually build our virtual machine service. So we, we obviously offer managed virtual machines like every other cloud provider does. But we build that on top of our bare metal infrastructure. So what that means is that, uh, you know, we have a unified control plane. We, we have, obviously, a, a unified API and, a, and an experience where, from a customer's perspective, whether they launch on a bare metal machine or a virtual machine, it doesn't matter to them. Uh, in fact, most images can boot across either one. That's, that all works. Um, but what we did is we made the choice to uh, build bare metal and then build VMs on top. And so what that means is that you know, our actual VM service is a customer of our bare metal API. Okay. It, and then it then has access kind of like a second layer on top, which manages the hypervisors themselves. How do you do things like bin packing and, and resource management? How do you do things like workload migration, et cetera, et cetera? A big part of the reason we did that was to make sure that if we can build our VM service on top of bare metal, other people can do the same. That's, that's kind of a core principle okay. that we can see throughout our offering. And it's not so much that we think lots of people will show up and build their own managed VM offering on top of us. But what it really means is that when you do it that way, you don't make a bunch of short-term decisions and hacks. That uh, what, I, what we find is that over time actually really slow you down. And so instead, if you say, hey, here's this functionality and you build it in a layered approach and you cleanly separate those layers – it actually gives you higher engineering velocity and a better separation of concerns between the products. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. What about you know you said you said containers are sort of their own their own beast. Uh, just give me give us a sense of how do container how, how do containers fit into that that model of of layers and abstractions? Sure. Um, so well, there's a, so containers can mean a couple of things. So what most people mean when they talk about containers these days is, is some kind of a managed container orchestration service, right? right. So, hey, I, I want, you know, Mesos or Kubernetes or something like that. And so what we've done is we've made a choice around Kubernetes because we think it's by far the most successful, most popular, and the, and the best in the market. Yep. And so what we have is we manage uh, Kubernetes clusters for our customers, and then we can actually deploy, you know, the actual Kubernetes worker nodes on either bare metal or virtual machines. Okay. And so we give that flexibility. So 
So in that sense, the orchestration service is really kind of separate on the side, but then integrates on top. Okay. Something else that we're actually working on that isn't available right now, but will be coming out later this year, is um, a different layer of abstraction for containers, which is uh, in the same way that you know bare metal and VMs, we're also going to offer it so that as a customer, you can just launch a container. You know, this will not have, there'll be no orchestration around this. And in many ways, if you think about it, a container is not all that different than a VM, except it's lighter weight, cheaper, might have a different billing model. Um, and, and you would only specify, obviously, the container rather than a, a whole operating system. But so what we'll offer in that sense is you can have managed container orchestration on the side, but on, on from the same compute API, you can get a bare metal, a VM, or a very lightweight container. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, and we're and we're starting to see that start to emerge in the in the market is you know people you know developers don't really care about Kubernetes sometimes they don't want to have to think about it and they just say just give me a container give me three or four containers and that's all I really care about so that, it makes sense that you're you're doing that evolution um, makes makes a lot of sense um, you know we talked a few minutes ago about you know kind of the like you said the mindset of giving customers um, you know enterprise like quality enterprise like uh, capabilities. As you talk about, you know, multiple regions, multiple data centers, people wanting to have highly available um, resources and so forth, or, or geographically dispersed resources, you know, the conversation always comes up about, well, how do we do networking between those? Like, um, you know, and, and networking ends up being a really big differentiator for companies, uh, cloud providers, in terms of performance, in terms of, like you said, level two, layer two versus layer three. Can you give folks a sense of, of how you do, um, you know, not only like, inter-region networking, but also, you know, I, w- I know one of the big things for, for Oracle is, you know, how do we interconnect, say, on-prem resources with uh, with cloud resources? Can you kind of walk folks through what's available and, and what you guys are thinking from an architecture perspective from a network for networks? Yeah, absolutely. And so and that, that question covers a whole bunch of different pieces, sure. right? It covers, um, it covers the way in which we actually build our, our data centers and connect things together. And then it also kind of um, switches over into the virtualized layer in which how do we, what, what's the object model and how do we expose these concepts to customers? So I'll start at the physical sure, and then I'll move up into the presentation that we give to customers. So okay. uh, at the physical layer, right, it starts with, uh, so we have this concept of uh, availability domains for everyone else who, who lives in the world. You should think of them as availability zones, um, which in, a, in effect is a logical data center, but we'll pretend it's a physical data center right now. Okay. Um, a large part of your work goes into how you design the physical network within that data center. So I, I won't get into the details, partly because it'll take too long and also because I'm not actually a network engineer. But the big choice that we made very early on is that within an availability domain, uh, we have a completely non-blocking network. What that means is that from any host to any other host in the network within that same data center, you can get full line rate um, from host to host. Okay. And that can be happening from, from all hosts to all other hosts. Um, and so in essence, right, if, for example, in our, in our most recent offering, each host has two 25-gig network cards or about 50 gigabit of uh, network throughput to each host. Okay. You can provision any two computers, and those two computers can talk at 50 gigabit to each other all the time. Wow. Okay. Um, the reason we did that is because it turns out that a lot of enterprise customers are used to that level of performance. Right, right, exactly. Now, they aren't used they aren't used to it across an entire data center, 
but they have applications that they will co-locate within a rack or within a few switches, and they expect that level of performance. And if what you do is you tell them, well, what you need to do is re-architect your application, once again, it's a barrier to adoption. So we made that choice. Um, then on top of that, what we have is we have a, a concept of a region very similar to like an Amazon Web Services region, which for us today consists of three availability domains in a region. And then it matters how you interconnect those. And so what we actually do is we build a ring around those three availability domains, and we connect them with fiber. Mm -hmm. uh, we make sure that all the traffic between those uh, as they leave the data center is fully, is fully encrypted. Um, and then we make sure that, you know, uh, over time that we continue to add capacity such that that, that, um, that ring never becomes a constraint. Gotcha. Um, such that basically customers don't have to worry about the bandwidth between those uh, data centers. And we, and we have a goal of between any two of those ADs in a region that you can get less than one millisecond uh, round-trip latency. Okay. That becomes your very high availability construct within a region. So uh, then on top of that, how do we do things like connect our regions together? Well, we have a global backbone that connects our regions together. Um, we also make sure that we encrypt all of the traffic across our uh, backbone. And then, of course, we also have uh, a significant amount of Internet transit that's available at each region, such that if you're serving things to or from the Internet for whatever reason, we also have that available. And so um, you can think of this as, in a networking term. It's not so much as a region-by-region region thing. You end up with this global network that you can connect to, uh, and then things can be routed between them um, in a very simple way. Um, Another thing to understand about our, our networking is that within our actual physical networking, everything is virtualized, meaning so our, our physical networking layer is actually very, very simple. And then we have this uh, overlay network that actually does all of the customer traffic as well as all of our personal traffic. Um, and that's how we can then move up into this overlay uh, virtualized network and offer a whole host of other features. That's where, for example... We offer uh, elastic IP addresses. You can control subnets. You get things like security lists that allow you to control, you know, it's basically a stateful and stateless NAT. Um, you can do things like attach multiple VNICs to a single computer. Um, it's, you know, all of the standard kind of features that you expect. And we also will be launching in a few months uh, some uh, novel features in the virtual networking space, which is things like we already support gratuitous ARP today, but MAC address learning and other L2 features that are very valuable for existing applications. Interesting. Yeah. On, top of, on top of that, we offer a lot of connectivity options. So we offer uh, a VPN as a service so that customers can show up and connect to a, uh, over a VPN. And I, I, I probably skipped this part, but it, it, it's important. Everything we expose in our cloud is fully in a virtualized network. So what that means is, is that you know a computer or a database or any other kind of a of a resource can't exist except in a virtual network. And then the customer has full control over that virtual network address range, what they want to expose to the internet versus what they want to expose back to on-prem, et cetera. Um, and so then to connect to that, most customers either set up a VPN or they use a, a different service that we offer called Fast Connect. Well, Fast Connect is analogous to something like AWS Direct Connect, yep. where you can either do direct, direct peering with us or you most customers end up uh, already have like a connection with like an NPLS provider, AT&T, Verizon, what have you. And then uh, they just make a, a, a connection with them and we are already connected with that provider and then they can get very fast, uh, very high bandwidth, very low latency access to our platform in a fully private way through that provider. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. 
No, it, make, it makes so, sense. And it, it, I mean, like the, hearing you sort of logically talk about it, and, you, and like you said, um, it, you, you do a very good job for somebody who uh, doesn't claim to be a network engineer. But, you know, just walking through what you're walking through, there, there is a very much a sense of uh, there is a focus on on bandwidth, which is which is always important to customers. You you allow people to not have to worry about physical proximity, even though maybe in their old data centers, they had to think about that. So you've, you've architected around those types of things. Um, like you said, you're, you're architecting to allow existing applications to migrate. So the level, the layer two types of features that you can't do in some, in some cloud environments are there. It's, it's, um, it's a very interesting kind of thought, you know, kind of way that you, you go about doing it because I think for, for a lot of IT people, um, it's going to check a lot of boxes for what they're used to being able to do within their own data centers. And, and that familiarity is important sometimes. It is. And then at the same time, for example, uh, if, you know, if, if an existing application wants to do a highly available network takeover by doing a gratuitous ARP, it can. But a new application might choose to use our integrated load balancer service, or perhaps it wants to just uh, make an API call and move the elastic IP address. So yep. we offer the, the existing technology, and we also offer the new way, which is much more API driven. Uh, and and, and uh, so I think it's about offering the best of both because yep. uh, it turns out that people need both. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, let, let me ask. You know, we've we, we could probably go into a lot of depth on on a lot of the infrastructure things. We, we won't get enough time to go into all of it. Um, I've, I've got a bunch of links in the show notes for people to go dig into things. What's the? How do you guys think about it? Because obviously, Oracle offers uh, you know a ton of SaaS applications um, and 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 a bunch of PaaS services. If you're a customer and you're coming in to the cloud somewhere, whether you come in through SaaS or whether you come in through IaaS, like what's the what's the way that you know I might integrate you know PaaS middleware services with with infrastructure services? Is it just you know, I get an I, I get an IP address or a URL, and I can link to them. You know, does does everything go through? You know, does it stay within the Oracle Cloud and encrypted? Like, how do you you know kind of walk me through how the different layers of the of the offerings uh, interact with each other? Sure. Um, so I, I think um, so. SaaS is a bit different than than the PaaS and IaaS layer, typically, right? So okay. typically, a lot of SaaS is offered over a over a, a URL endpoint, right? You yeah. have some identity integration, but that's almost always kind of over over the network, over the internet type of a thing, sure. um, and is more of, of people interacting with something. Okay. Um, and then it's about how do you get easy integration between that and other pieces. But that hasn't changed much for us. Now, we do offer a very integrated infrastructure and platform layer. And what that means to us is, is that obviously you should be able to come in and consume, for example, uh, things like uh, compute and block storage and virtual networking. But in that same environment, you should be able to provision things like an Oracle database. You should be able to provision things like uh, a Kafka uh, cluster or um, a Hadoop cluster, et cetera. And so we offer um, both large-scale multi-tenant systems like object storage, et cetera. We also offer managed services that deploy and operate um, individual clusters, uh, similar to something like RDS, and we do that for things like Kafka, et cetera. And so we have a suite of PaaS services, some of which are focused on new style applications, you know, Hadoop, uh, Kafka, caching, et cetera, and also a, a suite of those services that are, that are focused more on existing applications, things like uh, Java as a service, which focuses on uh, web logic, um, mobile uh, services, integration cloud services. 
And so we actually offer all of those PaaS services in, on top of uh, our new infrastructure. Um, and so those things can just be provisioned. They'll show up in your fully virtualized network, uh, and you'll operate them the same way that you know customers expect. Gotcha, gotcha. And that was yeah. You sort of answered one of the follow up questions I was going to have: is is are all these new services now running natively on this same uh, you know cloud infrastructure? And it sounds like that's the case. Things have things have sort of been migrated over the last couple of years. Yeah, so we've, we've worked hard to make sure that we get our, our PaaS layer kind of ported over first, and that's been very successful. Um, we're in the process of moving all of the SaaS properties over onto us, and as we do that, we'll be able to offer more integration. So you can imagine, you know, you set up Fast Connect once, and suddenly you want your HR application, and now it's not on the Internet. You can only access it from your, your private network. There's a lot of options there, um, and that, that's something that will be completed later this summer, um, but uh, in general, that, that integration is not uh, uh, is nearly as big a deal as the infrastructure and platform layer integration, and we, so we focused on that first. Yeah, no, it makes makes a lot of sense. Listen, Jay, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of wrap it up with that. We're sort of hitting our, our time limit. Um, real quick, what's the best way? You know, if folks want to either you know reach out to you and your team and kind of you know talk about kind of what's what what they can do around uh, cloud infrastructure services or um, you know some of the things that that are new that people should go take a look at. You know, what's uh, What's kind of hot and, 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 you know, top of mind for you these days? Um, well, you know, obviously we love, we love people to reach out to us. Um, so the easiest way to get in contact with us is go to cloud.oracle.com. We have a free trial. We'd love everybody to sign up and use it um, and, and play around with the product. Um, and then in addition, uh, there's, there's contact information on the website, which makes it very easy for you to reach out to us and you can get in contact with our uh, our product management team and our support team. Um, and, you know, we, we love feedback, love people trying out the platform, giving us information. If you have requests, um, we're, we're very excited to make our customers successful. Yeah, no, I, and we, uh, we appreciate you coming on. You know, like I said, we've, we've had a lot of people asking about it. Um, it, you know, it was good to kind of pick your brain and, and not only kind of understand, okay, you know, what, what, what features are there and, and so forth, but really kind of understand the thinking that you guys have had behind, architectural decisions, you know, kind of trying to, to put yourself in the, in a customer's shoes and saying, you know, how do we make them successful? How do we help them migrate? So really appreciate the time today, uh, folks with that, I'm going to wrap it up, uh, for Aaron and for, uh, and for clay very much. Thank you for the time today, folks. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more podcasts, show notes, and everything social media. And visit acloud.guru for all your cloud training needs.